if you want to open in your Bibles to John chapter 14, we'll read starting in verse 15 there. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. We'll actually read on through the end of the chapter with that. And then we'll start uh, also in John chapter 15, verse 26, and read on through 16, 15. You know, that's a lot of numbers I just threw at you. So if you can just remember these, 14, 15, and 1526. That's where we're going to start both of our readings. If you can just remember those, it should be good. Well, uh, a while back, the the world lost one of the theological greats of our time, the Reverend Dr. R.C. Sproul. And uh, Table Talk Magazine, I remember they they released a a special edition one month in his honor um, after his death, and, and, and shortly after it came out, I, I remember reading this interview uh, with his beloved wife of almost 60 years in it, and it, she, she recounted the, the story of, of how she had come to faith in Christ. It was a story I'd actually read from, from Sproul elsewhere, but, but apparently R.C. and Vesta had been engaged to be married before either of them were Christians. However, shortly after they became engaged, R.C., became a Christian, and he was a serious Christian. He was one of those, those born-again Christians that told other people that they also needed to be born again. And so in this interview, Vesta Sproul said that at the time, on the one hand, she actually thought it was, it was a good thing that R.C. had become a Christian. She was actually a little bit relieved. She said in the interview, she thought, well, you know, it's, it's nice. He's become a Christian. He's got some problems in his life, and, and he might need that sort of thing. Uh, but apparently, it was also kind of annoying uh, to her because he was always talking to people about Jesus, and so she wished he'd just kind of tone it down a little bit. Well, one weekend, Vesta was, was coming home uh, to Pittsburgh from college for a break, and R.C. had made up his mind that if Vesta didn't become a Christian that weekend, that he was going to break off the engagement. He didn't tell anyone about this, but he, he did pray, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He says, uh, that, that he prayed prayers that would make, uh, you know, the, the, the persistent widow of Luke 18 look mild in comparison. He said at the, at the time he didn't know anything about God's eternal decree or the doctrine of election, but he said that if her name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, he would have etched it in that very day. Well, the time came and, and Vesta arrived, and, and one evening uh, she, she joined R.C. at a prayer meeting. And at this prayer meeting beforehand, there was a short devotional, and the gospel was shared in it, and, and then the time of prayer came, and, and almost immediately after prayer started, Vesta burst out, out loud, and said, oh my goodness, now I know who the Holy Spirit is. Now I know who the Holy Spirit is. Of course, at the time, she, she might not have known all about the doctrine of the new birth, she probably wasn't aware yet as, as to how to correctly communicate the doctrine of the Trinity. She probably didn't know anything about the Filioque debate in the Nicene Creed, as some of you are experts in. But one thing was sure in that moment was that God the Holy Spirit came to dwell in her, and she now knew Him. This morning, we're, we're considering this question together of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit one of three divine persons in the one true God, 
Or is he in an impersonal force, like the conception of God in pantheism or whatever it is they use in Star Wars to kill each other? Is the Holy Spirit someone that you can know and commune with and enjoy? Or is the Holy Spirit an impersonal power that we, that we kind of tap into? Or, or, or this thing that God activates among Christians to do certain things at certain times? Is the Holy Spirit a divine person or an impersonal force? And this is a question that was, that was uh, asked in the 2022 State of Theology Report released by Ligonier and Lifeway Research, which we've been kind of looking at a little bit in this series and the results of it were released right last year. And, and in it, one of the statements they offered was this. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. And 711 people professing to be evangelical Christians, that's, that, that's a word that would mean gospel Christians, people who confess the gospel and are centered on the gospel, gospel Christians, responded to that statement and they responded, they were supposed to respond in either agreement or disagreement. And among them, 7% said they weren't sure. 9% said they somewhat agreed. And 51% said they strongly agreed that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not personal. My friends, as always, we want to see and learn what the Bible has to say about this matter. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit. And this, this matters immensely for us as Christians because we're those who are supposed to know God and have communion with God and represent God in the world today. And so we want to address this matter so that the strong among us would be confirmed and assured of what we already know and believe, so that the weak would be strengthened, so that the ignorant would be uninformed, and all so that we might be more and better equipped to delight in God, to disciple one another, and declare what we believe to a lost world. That's our purpose this morning and, and, and with this whole series. And so with that, let's read John chapter 14, verses, uh, beginning in verse 15 and reading on till the end of the chapter. And then we'll read beginning in John chapter 15 and verse 26. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. These are words spoken by Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by John. We are looking at John chapter 14, starting in verse 15 here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And we'll start again in John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And Father, as Adam prayed earlier for Force Ridge, Baptist Church, we pray for ourselves this morning that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, open our eyes this morning so that we may see wondrous things in your word, so that we may see and know who the Holy Spirit is and have communion with him as our God. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Well, to give you a little context as to our passage here, we're looking at a, a couple of sections in what we call the farewell discourse of Jesus. It's recorded for us in John's gospel, and we call it the farewell discourse because it's Jesus addressing and teaching his disciples just prior to his death, resurrection, and eventual ascension. Jesus is preparing his disciples to, to move forward in life and in ministry and in following him, all without his immediate physical presence there with them. He's preparing them 
because he's no longer going to be right by their side. He's, he's preparing them because they're going to be living in and ministering in and evangelizing and following him in a world that is hostile to them, in a world that hates them. They're going to have their own flesh to battle. They're going to have the devil and people attacking them. They're going to have hardship and sorrow and difficulty. And so, so much stacked up against them, all without Jesus's immediate physical presence with them. But, Jesus says, in all this, they are going to be equipped with God's presence within them for their calling and need. And it's within this overall context here that Jesus begins to tell them something about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what we're looking at this morning. Notice with me here how Jesus's words first show us that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, and second, that the Holy Spirit is our divine paraclete. And we'll define that in, in a few moments. But first, the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Again, Jesus is, is teaching his disciples about what's to come. This is the night of his betrayal, the night before his death, he's about to be betrayed, abandoned, arrested. He's about to be tortured, crucified, killed, and, and then subsequently he's going to rise from the dead and ascend into heaven where he will dwell until he comes again to judge. And so that's what he's talking about here when he tells the disciples in 16, 17 that he's about to go away. And with that, the, the disciples, as we see in 16, 6, are obviously troubled. They're distraught. They're their teacher, their friend, their leader that they've spent almost every waking moment with over the last three years is about to go away, he's telling them. And with that, everything Jesus is saying here is, is, is pregnant with meaning and it's tender with care. He's trying to comfort them and assure them you can see this. And he does this by telling them about the Holy Spirit, about how the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell in the disciples about how he's going to be at work in their lives, about how he's going to be their friend and actually bring them into a closer communion and union with Jesus. And so one of the items made clear here in Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit is the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say personhood, when I say person, I don't mean like a human being, right? When I say person here, I don't mean like the singular of the word people, okay? The Holy Spirit, he's we don't mean that he's a human being composed of body and soul. He's, he's pure spirit. He is God. He's not a human being, but being God, he is personal, right? He's not a force. He's not an it. He's not, as, as one author once put it, the vapor trail of Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. And, and I understand that thinking about the Holy Spirit in this way maybe doesn't come as naturally to some of us as it might when we're thinking about the other two persons of the Trinity. When we call God the Father, Father, right, we immediately recognize that as a relational designation, as is the Son, right? Just by calling the Father, Father, and just by calling the Son, Son, it's clear that they're both personal. But, but then calling the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, it might, for some of us, give us a picture of something other than a person, and moreover, sometimes the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is, is depicted or spoken of in the Bible using analogies of things like wind. We can see that in John 3. In John 20, we see the, the Spirit and breath being associated. We see water in John 7, the Spirit being associated with water. We see Him manifested or, 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 or depicted as a dove 
in John 1, or as fire in Acts 2. And so sometimes, you know, manifestations of the Spirit's presence or analogies speaking about Him in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is associated with impersonal things in this way. However, it is abundantly clear here in Jesus' words, as well as in the rest of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is personal. Notice here in our text the ways in which Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. Look at, look at uh, uh, John chapter 14 and verses 16 to 17. There Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Look next at John Chapter 14, verse 26, there Jesus says that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. We look at John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Give it out to verse 13, chapter 16 there. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you can see here how, how, how Jesus is making it crystal clear that the Holy Spirit is not a thing or an it. It's not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is personal. He calls the Holy Spirit He and Him over and over again, not, not to engender the Holy Spirit, but, but to show that He's a person. And in John 14, 26, the Spirit teaches. In 15, 26, the Spirit bears witness. In 16, 13, he guides, he teaches, he hears. In 1616, he declares, he's referred to with personal pronouns of he and him, and he engages in personal acts of teaching and guiding and listening and declaring he is a person. And the rest of Holy Scripture continues to bear witness to the personhood of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8.29, Luke says that the Spirit speaks. In Acts 5.3, Peter says that the Holy Spirit is lied to by Ananias and Sapphira. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin and unrepentance and hard-heartedness. Only a person speaks and can be lied to and be grieved. The Holy Spirit is a person. But then moreover, He's not just a person. He's a divine person. See here, the divine personhood of the Holy Spirit is... As Christians, we confess and we believe that God is triune. Tri meaning three, yun meaning one. God is three in one. There are three persons that we worship and adore and love as God, each being fully and truly God. They each possess distinct personal attributes and eternity. The Father is uncreated and unbegotten. The Son is begotten of the Father eternally. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They, they also, they each work in, in particular ways in creation and in redemption. And yet their work is always inseparable, being one being, one essence, one nature. They, they, they share in this unity of nature of 
of being of essence because there's only one God. We see in Deuteronomy 6.4 and saw last week in 1 Timothy 2.7, God is three persons, but there's only one God. This, of course, goes beyond our ability to, to comprehend as limited creatures, but it's something that we also confess and delight in as Christians. And you might notice sometimes when you're reading Scripture that the biblical authors, they make it very clear that the Father is God, right? The Scriptures often just refer to the Father as God. It's also very clear, as we've seen the last two weeks, that the Son is God. Each New Testament author attests clearly to the deity of Christ. Jesus himself in John 8 refers to himself as the I Am of Exodus 3. There are many Old Testament texts throughout the New Testament that, that, that are quoted as referring to Yahweh, as now referring to Jesus. It's clear. But then some might say, some have said that it's just not as clear. There's not as much scriptural evidence for the deity of the Holy Spirit. But if you look, you definitely see it here. Just seeing our text this morning, one indication of the Holy Spirit's deity is that Jesus calls him in 14.6, another helper. Right? And, and calling the Holy Spirit another helper, Jesus is saying that he himself is a helper, as the one that the, the disciples already know, but, but he says that he's going to send them another helper. He's saying that he's going to send someone that is similar and comparable to him. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are two divine helpers sent to us from God the Father. Moreover, in 16.7, Jesus says that it's actually better for the, the helper, this other helper, the Holy Spirit, to come and to make his home among God's people. And that's true because the Holy Spirit won't just dwell beside God's people like Jesus in that moment, but he will come to dwell within God's people. But the question remains, how could it be better for Jesus to go away and the Spirit to come unless the Holy Spirit is divine like the Son is divine? How could it be better for a person who is God to go away and send another person who is less than God? It wouldn't be. It would only be better if the Holy Spirit is divine like the Son is divine when he comes to dwell in us. Of course, there's another, uh, a number of other texts that we can look at outside of our particular passage as well. We're, we're fond around here of quoting the, the, the words of the institution of baptism in which Jesus instructs us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's one divine name that the Father, Son, and Spirit share. In Acts 5.3, the fiery deaths of Ananias and Sapphira that we've already referred to. But Peter tells Ananias that he has lied to the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 5.5, 5, Peter says in reference to that, that he is not lied to men, but to God. In 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17, Paul says that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Just a few chapters later, in 19.14, he refers to the, to, uh, he, he says that the, the, the church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a temple of God, it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews 9.14 the author refers to the Holy Spirit as the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit is eternal, something only true of God. In Psalm 139, 7 through 10, we see that the Holy Spirit is present everywhere, all at once. He's omnipresent, and that's something that's only true of God as well. So of course, more that we could say, but, but suffice it to say, the Holy Spirit is a person, and he's a divine person. He's not a force or an aura or a vapor trail. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity. He's fully and surely God, deserving of our love and worship and adoration. And friends, it's essential that we know this. It's essential that we treasure these truths. I, I, 
I know that there's a charge often made against uh, people like me today that, that theology like this, doing theology like this is abstract and unimportant, but it's not. This is essential because, well, this is who God is. This is who God is. This is, this is the God who has saved us. This is the God who, who deserves all of the love of all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. This is the God who is presently at work in and among us, to save and to sanctify us and send us into this world. And moreover, this is not the work of an it or a thing or an impersonal force. This is a work of a person who loves us and who knows us and that we can know and love in return. This is important because you, you can't know or, or be known by an it. You can't have communion with an it, but you can know and be known by a person. You can give and receive love from a person. You can commune with and enjoy the presence of a person. And that's the basis for our next point. Is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. And that the Holy Spirit is our divine paraclete. So we've seen something of, of who the Holy Spirit is this morning. But, but then the question remains, who is he to us as Christians? Who is he to us? Well, Jesus will say here that he's, he's a paraclete to us. He's a paraclete. I know that's a weird word. Having just read our text, you probably didn't see the word paraclete anywhere in it. That's because it's not an English word, and, and therefore it's not in most of our English transla translations. It's a transliteration of a Greek word, and that word is translated in the ESV as the word helper. So 14.16 of, of John says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. John 14.26, Jesus says the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And in John 16, 7, Jesus says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, if you've got a different translation of the Bible that you're reading there, you might have a, a, a different word being used to translate this word here. Instead of the word helper, you might be seeing the word advocate or counselor or comforter or intercessor. Some translators just throw up their hands and transliterate the word parakletos and use the word paraclete, like I'm using this morning. And, and you know, here's a, a rule when you're reading the Bible is that whenever you see different translations translating a word differently, you can bet that that is a, a, a difficult word to translate, that it's a, a robust, complex, multifaceted kind of word, and that's certainly true here. Helper, comforter, counselor, advisor, friend, intercessor, in other words, have all been used to describe this word before, but they might, they might just not quite capture it fully. They tend more to give maybe something of a partial picture of one particular aspect of what a paraclete is. Charles Spurgeon um, once talked about this word and translating this word. He said that these words reveal corners of the word rather than the whole of it. They are lights that really stream from the text, but they are one of the many prismatic colors rather than the combined light of the very instructive and wonderful word paraclete. See, friends, this is a robust and complex and multifaceted, wonderful and instructive word, as, as Spurgeon is saying here. 
And if we were forced to maybe sum it up in a single sentence, we might say that, that what this is saying about the Holy Spirit is that He is a helper and an advocate. He's a counselor and a friend and advisor, a comforter and intercessor. He's an all-around someone who is always there for God's people with the exact help we need precisely when we need it. He's all around someone who's always there for God's people with the exact help we need precisely when we need it. That's being communicated here in this word paraclete. I got to see a beautiful picture of this growing up in the marriage of my grandparents, my Nana and my Papa. Uh, when I was pretty young, my Papa, um, he had a severe stroke and it left him severely handicapped uh, on the right side of his body and uh, he could hardly speak. Uh, I was about three when this happened and he died when I was 15. And I got to watch my Nana for those, much of those 12 years there uh, just live out this, this call to be this imperfect parable of the word paraclete. She was, she was his nurse, she was his friend, his companion. When he would have bouts in the hospital, which he did fairly often, she would, she would often advocate and fight with and yell at the doctors on his behalf. Uh, she was, she's a fierce woman. And she was his accountant, she was his cook, uh, when she thought it would be best to move him to, to a, a warmer place, she moved them down to South Carolina, but when he later wanted to move back up to Dayton in his final few years to be close to his children and grandchildren, she moved them back up to Dayton. All of that and more. When, she, when he needed to use the restroom, he would give this particular hand signal and she would help him. When he, needed, when he needed to eat, he would give another signal and she would make and serve him a meal. When he needed her to speak on his behalf, she would somehow discern what he was trying to say and then speak on his behalf. She was almost always there for him, knowing the exact help he needed precisely when he needed it. She never left him to fend for himself. And that's who the Holy Spirit is to us. He's always there in the life of the Christian with the exact help we need precisely when we need it. If there was a secret to the Christian life, this would be it the Holy Spirit, the presence and person of the Holy Spirit. This is the secret to living the Christian life, I promise you. See, even from the start of the Christian life, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 3 tells us that no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't even be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. John 14 to 16 makes it clear. No one can truly confess and understand and trust in Jesus as Lord for salvation to begin with apart from him. We need the spirit of truth, Jesus says in John 16, 3, to come and to guide us into the truth concerning Christ. Of course, that, that applies to the apostles in an immediate and unique way, but it, it does still apply to us today in a secondary sense. We all need the Holy Spirit to guide us into knowing and believing the truth that the apostles recorded for us in the scriptures. We need him to graciously as, as, as Jesus says in John 16 here, we need him graciously to convict us of our sin and lead us into repentance, as Jesus says he'll do in John 16, 8. We need him to glorify and illuminate Jesus in our midst, just as Jesus says he'll do in John 16, 14. All throughout the Christian life, we need the Holy Spirit. If you're in the midst of difficulties and sufferings and sorrows in life, which some of you are right now, you need the paraclete. You need the Holy Spirit. 
Of course, he very well might not ever take us out of our difficulties and sufferings. In fact, if you read all of John 14 to 16 here, which I'd encourage you to do, you'll see that Jesus actually is promising here that difficulties and trials and sorrows are going to come in this life. He says, they're going to put you out of synagogues. He says in 1633, you're going to have tribulation in this world. He tells them, hey, they're going to kill you. But, he says, this is why the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is such good news. Jesus says in 1427, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Part of what he's talking about there is the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. Though he might not take us out of our trials and difficulties, this is what we can have confidence in. He will give us peace and comfort and he will sustain us in the midst of them with a very joyful, enlivening, strengthening presence of God within us. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you in this room have gone through, through horrific sufferings and trials and difficulties with deaths and sicknesses and pain and loss and abandonment and betrayal. And yet I've heard some of you, I've heard some of you testify to this enduring peace and comfort, this heart rest in the midst of it all that is unexplainable. That, that very well may not, did, it didn't take away the sorrow and pain and tears, but that does enable you and equip you to bear up under the difficulties that you face with resilience and with hope. Friends, that's the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the paraclete at work in your life. Or what about when we're in situations when we're given opportunity to, to share our faith and to stand up for the truth of Christ? The apostles here. They're being prepared to be sent out as witnesses for Christ. They're going to, to be sent out to speak before crowds and kings. They're going to be going to, to speak before uh, the, the, the great and the lowly. And Jesus is saying to them, the Holy Spirit is going to be with you for this very ministry. And some of us in this room, we, we fear speaking up and communicating the gospel to people in our families, people that we work with, people that we live next to. And, 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 and you want to, you, you want to speak on behalf of Christ. You want to communicate the gospel. You love Christ. You love your neighbors. You want them to know Christ. And maybe you've even tried at times, but you feel, you feel like, man, I'm just not good at this. I don't know what to say. I, I, I don't know the best way to express and get across what I need to get across. The Holy Spirit is with you to empower you for witness, Acts 1.8. Luke 12, 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. He is our paraclete, and he gives us words when we have none ourselves. Moreover, he, he helps us in prayer. Do you struggle in prayer, in consistency, in paying attention, in perseverance in prayer? In Romans 8, 26, he helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. He helps us in prayer. He helps us in our weakness. Here's one we're not apt to think of in our highly individualized culture. Our church, the people sitting around you in this moment, the flesh and blood seated next to you in this room is a gift given to you by the Holy Spirit. In fact, we might say that, that, that the church is one of the primary instruments through which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And so much of the growth, so much of the sanctification, of the encouragement, of the edification, 
the preservation of the growth in knowledge, the transformation we experience as Christians happens by the Holy Spirit, but through the instrumentality of other believers in our church. I personally, I I don't think I'd be able to speak about hardly any of the growth and change that I've personally experienced over the last seven or eight years without speaking in the same breath about some of you in this very room and the way that the Holy Spirit has, has used you personally in my life. And I'd be willing to bet that the same is true for many of us. And the Holy Spirit saves us and He fills us, not so that we would go on to live independent Christian lives. He saves us and fills us so that we could go on to live lives of interdependence in the body of Christ so that we might be used in the lives of others to His ends and so that others might be used by Him in our lives to His ends as well. So that we would be brought into a church wherein the Holy Spirit ministers through all of us to all of us. Of course, we could go on and on all morning about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need assurance. Galatians 4, 6 tells us the Spirit was sent into our hearts for that purpose. We need all of us, the ongoing transformation of our character into Christ's likeness. Galatians 5, 16 to 24 tells us that He has been sent to, to bear spiritual fruit in us and to transform us into lives of virtue and holiness. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit to serve the church and build up the church. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit equips us with the gifts we need to serve as people. And we could go on that the benefits of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is myriad. But, but, but friends, lest we be tempted to love the gifts more than the giver and the benefits more than the benefactor, I want us to remember this this morning, that the best part about having the Holy Spirit with us is simply having the Holy Spirit with us. The best thing about the paraclete coming to dwell in us is that we have the personal presence of God with us. As we remember and reflect on all of these these streams of blessing that come to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we would do well to remember that He's the fountain. As we give thanks for the gifts of conversion, of conviction of sin, of comfort, of peace, of time, in times of trial, of help and witness and prayer. Let us give thanks most of all for the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself coming to dwell in and among us. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He's a person. He's a divine person. He's the third person of the Trinity, and he's our paraclete. He's our helper, our comforter. He's our, our advocate, our counselor, our friend. He comforts us, teaches us, helps us. He witnesses to us and through us. He speaks to us and through us. He changes us and counsels us and advocates for us. He's always there with the precise help we actually need whenever it is we really need it. And so with that, let me give two encouragements before we close here. The first is for those of us here who are not Christians. To you, I'd say, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian here this morning, as, as, as one commentator put it, he who does not know the Holy Spirit does not know God at all. Without the Holy Spirit, friends, we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. If you would know God as your Father, if you would know Christ as your Savior, you must know the Holy Spirit as your paraclete. You cannot know Christ. You cannot trust in Christ. You cannot have the forgiveness of Christ unless the Holy Spirit first gives you the new birth from above, unless, as Vesta Sproul put it, you begin to know who the Holy Spirit is. 
Friends, Christ died on the cross in your place to bear the penalty you deserve for your sins so that you can be relieved of all your guilt. He rose again on the third day as the dawn of the new creation so that we could be changed and made new by it. But none of that applies to you at all unless you first receive the Holy Spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit first gives you eyes to see Christ and ears to hear Christ and a heart that trusts Christ, He'll never be your Savior and Lord. Ask the Spirit to take the things of Christ and declare them to you. Call on Him to fill you and make you alive in Christ. If you'd like to talk more or or pray, grab someone, talk and pray after the service, but don't leave here today without knowing who the Holy Spirit is. And secondly, for those of us who are Christians, remember the Holy Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that He would not leave us as orphans, but that He would send the Holy Spirit to us. You've not been left as an orphan in the Christian life. Don't live like it. We have... All of the riches and resources of the presence of God for living the Christian life, we ought not live in poverty. You've been given the very presence of God within our souls. So we should not live as if we are on our own. Depend on the Spirit. Look to the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit. Trust in Him. Seek Him. In a word, remember Him always. In Him, Christ has given you communion with Himself. He's given us sanctification and joy and holiness and self-control and so much more every day. Acknowledge the Spirit. Turn to Him in your heart. Be mindful of Him and pay attention to His presence in your life. Charles Spurgeon, he gave this very exhortation to his church when he preached on the Holy Spirit as our paraclete a few hundred years ago. And his words are fitting to, to close with this morning. Listen to what he says. Friends, honor the Spirit of God as you would honor Jesus Christ if he were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore him. You would not go about your business as if he were not there. Do not ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul. I beseech you, do not live as if you had not heard whether there were a Holy Spirit. We grieve him exceedingly when we do not reckon upon him. Love the Spirit Worship the Spirit, trust the Spirit, obey the Spirit, and as a church, cry mightily to the Spirit. Beseech Him to let His mighty power be known and felt among you. The Lord fire your hearts with this sacred flame, for as this made Pentecost stand out from all other days, may it make this year stand out in our history from all other years. Come Holy Spirit now. You are with us, but come in power. And let us feel your sacred might. Let's pray together. Oh God, the Spirit, we adore you. In the triune Godhead, one. One in love and power and glory with the Father and the Son. We pray that this morning your grace and your power and your presence would be known among us in a new way. Incline our hearts to you. Incline our hearts to the Father and to the Son through your ministry and presence so that we would be a triune people who love and adore you, triune God. Refresh us, renew us. Lead us into deeper repentance and reliance upon yourself. Pray that you would glorify Jesus in our midst in ways that are transforming and unmistakable. 
And we ask now as we're about to approach the, the table of our Lord that you would make it unto us the communion with the body and blood of Jesus so that we might be prepared and nourished for bearing witness to him in this world as you send us out to go. We pray all this by the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.